0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Today on Obsessed with Design, we have a special rebroadcast of my discussion with design legend Paula Scher. Paula is a graphic designer, painter, and art educator, and in 1991, she became the first female principal at Pentagram in New York City. We talk about how she got started, her thoughts on design criticism, and some of her favorite new projects that you may not have heard about yet. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation and special rebroadcast of Paula Scher. One side note, Pentagram was having some remodeling done during our interview. So if you think you hear some scratching in the background, I think that's probably the drywall guys hard at work. Hey guys, today I am beyond honored to have Paula share from Pentagram as our guest. Paula, welcome to Obsessed with Design. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you.
0: Paula, you are probably not aware of how much your work has brightened up our studio. And although I've been a big fan of your work personally for many years, we just finally got around to framing a couple of your number series posters. We've got a, a number two and a number five in our office and uh in addition to a copy of your Make It Bigger book, of course, you've got a got a pretty good presence here. And uh, I understand your connection to my friend Cody Thompson had something to do with the posters. So I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that that number series and tell us how that ended up getting produced in Indiana.
1: Um, I had a, a conversation with Cody, I think, and now this probably goes back, um, I don't know, seven, eight, seven or eight years. I don't remember when, quite when I designed those series. Um, he had printed some public theater posters and uh, he had approached me at one point about creating something for sale. And I liked the idea of doing posters of big numbers because I thought it was a smart sales idea and that you could pick your birthday or your address and they would all be designed to work together and you just d- design zero through nine and, and everybody would control their own numbers. So we produced them. I don't think they ever particularly sold, nor did we have any method of distribution, but I always liked them graphically. Um, they were, they were four colors plus black and, uh, they were, uh, very minimal and, uh, I really enjoyed making them. I still like them. I have the two hanging up in my home too.
0: Very cool. Yeah. I love the, the, the two, maybe this doesn't make for great radio talking about the visuals, but, um, the two kind of has a coat hanger look to it, and the five. It is a some, coat hanger. It's just very, a cut off uh, coat hanger. Yeah, it's a, just a great looking visual. I love the um, all other colors that kind of overlap from the way it was printed too. It's just very cool.
1: Thank you.
0: So, tell us a little bit. Um, I'd like to go go back a little bit and understand. You know, I've I've, I've heard you talk before about uh, your experience with CBS Records and Atlantic, but. What kind of drove you into the the graphic design world in the first place?
1: Well, it was the only thing that I was good at in college. I wasn't even that good at it, but I was good. I was better <laughs> at it than I was at everything else. So yes, that's what drove me. You know, it was it was uh, sort of finding myself to be someone who really didn't draw all that well, understood and liked painting, but not particularly distinguished at it. Um, uh, terrible at crafts you know, things like metals and, Mm -hmm. um, pottery, horrible, horrible. And, uh, graphic design was, um, about ideas and that was better for me.
0: Well, I think transitioning from, uh, the idea thing I think is huge, but I think transitioning from the, the world of design or art school and getting into album art and then into the world of branding. I mean, that seems to be, um, a really great segue for you as far as the idea thing goes.
1: I think that it was easier to make certain kinds of moves and transitions 40 years ago than it is now. Mm-hmm. And um, the things that I look at and think, my God, how did I ever do that? Well, I was
0: lucky. Yeah, I think um, especially for the the Gen X generation, which I'm part of, you know, all of the kids coming out of school were saying, oh, I just want to like go design CD covers and work with bands. and." Um, it's. It was never a very you know super realistic career for someone who's you know in 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 the Midwest or something. But so cool for you to jump straight into that that industry out of school.
1: Well, it wasn't a super realistic career for me either. Um, I mean, you had to be a New Yorker in LA to do that. You mm-hmm. can't you can't do it from the Midwest. I mean, there were certain things that I did which helped me, which was move to New York. I'm not a native New Yorker. I moved here. It was a direct choice. And I moved here because I thought I'd have broader opportunities than I would in Washington, D.C. or in Philadelphia. And that's true.
0: So how did you get introduced to Pentagram in the first place? I understand you came on in the early 90s, I think.
1: 1991, I joined. They asked me to join in 1990. I moved to New York in 1970 with about $50 in a portfolio. And I worked for 10 years mostly in the music industry, and then I started my own firm that was called Coppell and Share with somebody I went to college with named Terry Coppell, and he was an editorial designer, and we designed um, magazines and this sort of promotional and advertising pieces for youth-oriented companies, which was the sort of work I got after I was in the music industry. In the late 90s, we hit, late 80s, we hit a very bad recession, and Terry took a job at a magazine, and I was working on my own. And at that point in time, uh, a partner of Pentagram, a, a man I'd known for, I would say, about 12 years named Woody Purtle, came and asked me if I would be interested in joining. And I knew the partners of Pentagram, the ones I did know, I knew through the AIGA, where I was active and I was on the board in um, 1982. So my relationships with these people go quite back pretty far.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Uh, lots of the guests that we've interviewed have talked about their, their AIGA connections really. I, I
1: very much owe so much of my professional life to the AIGA because I made, I when the, in the record as an industry, everybody in the record industry was a, a music person. It was a music business and mm-hmm. and people were much more passionate about music than they were in design. Many designers I know who were terrific in the music industry really once they left the industry and they were record cover designers, they really couldn't find their way doing anything else. And it was because they were so specialized to that industry. I never was. I wanted to be a graphic designer. I didn't that I was in the music industry was great, but that wasn't my first calling.
0: Well, that's uh, an interesting thought. Uh, obviously, are you still teaching at SVA? Yes, I teach um, a senior portfolio class. Cool. So, you know, given your own experience, what do you tell the students today when they say, should I specialize or should I be broad or, you know, where, where, how are you coaching young designers and students today?
1: Well, I, I teach uh, identity. And I believe that identity is one of the secure, securest places to begin to work because if you can understand and master identity, it means that you can do a really broad base of work because to design an identity effectively, you have to communicate in every channel. You have to be, uh, somebody who can design form. You could be. You have to be somebody who can plan a communication system. You have to be somebody who can make um, a design function on every single level, whether it's digital or it's um, three dimensional. It involves every part of design. So when you learn that, you learn everything.
0: And of course, at least from from what I can tell in the public, that identity still is is a large part of what you're doing at Pentagram. Correct? Totally. I mean, I describe myself as an identity designer. I think it's where everything begins and i I love um you know kind of like the number series or you know you've you've had so many cool poster and outdoor applications as well but i I feel like your your touch as an identity designer is really what informs where you go with those um, visual identities as well that's right so how do you judge how do you personally score if if you've done a great job with an identity project, what what tells you if it's been successful or not?
1: Um, It's hard to tell um, until it's been around for a couple of years. You know, identity systems have to live in the public. That's why I'm very much against people who do instant criticisms on blogs about identities because it really takes a period of time for the public to absorb it and also for the identity to correct itself in public. You know, everybody now writes about Shake Shack because it's perceived as a successful identity. But it was designed ten years ago. It just, mm-hmm. it just because of the nature of the fact that it contemporized the view of what uh, a fast casual dining experience was. It's it becomes very relevant now, and I don't know how it would have been judged ten years ago if anybody bothered to. Thank God they didn't.
0: <laughs> I, I think it's, um, you know, the, the good news or bad news is that new identity really signals to the market that something's different or you should should take notice or pay attention to it. But, you know, that's the, the double edged sword where you have the world where people are instantly criticizing and even seeing some some brands completely backpedal uh, on a new identity release when they have that kind of feedback.
1: Well, I think that that's you know not everybody cares that much,
0: <laughs> you know. There are a <laughs> bunch of
1: people who get on you know who who go online and blog about it and make a big noise about it, and then six months later, everybody forgets about it anyway. I mean, there's some things that have been uh, pulled back, and there are some things that have failed, mm-hmm. but mostly
0: things haven't. Well, you've worked with so many amazing clients, um, you know, from from MoMA to uh, you know all of the different clients that Pentagram has had their doors do you you have any um you know of your greatest hits what are some of your favorites or ones that you're most proud of
1: well i'm proud of different parts of different things and they're all they're all part of identity design i think my my favorite running running identity is really not the logo itself but the work and the system and the spirit for the public theater which Mm -hmm. I've working on for 23 years. I've actually redesigned that logo three times and nobody even knows because I, (laughs) you know, correct the forms for the times as they change. Um, I get to reinvent the promotional system. And uh, when you look at it over the years, you really see the change. There've been more successful periods and less successful periods. Right now is a very good period, but it goes up and down because it's a living, breathing thing. I'm really pleased with that. I'm very proud of the logo and the continuing work for the High Line, which uh, was, um, I think, very appropriate and um, still relevant, even though it was designed in 2000, long before the, um, uh, the thing was built or opened. So that was rather terrific. Things that I have pride about are Things where in-house art departments uh, take over and enable something that was systematic for me to grow, Um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art is a case in point where the identity launched two years ago. And if you look at the amount of work produced now and how much stronger it's become within its city, um, that's a testament to it living and breathing. These are the sorts of things I like.
0: Well, I would imagine that Pentagram on the whole, and you specifically can kind of have your your choice of clients that you do or don't want to take on. I'm just kind of curious when, when somebody new walks in the door, how do you determine if it's going to be a good client fit? And how do you decide if it's maybe a relationship you should move on from?
1: Well, um, generally you kind of have an instinct when you meet somebody, but in most instances, I would say you can tell in the first presentation. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell by, before I've even designed anything for a client, I've had a long series of um, discussions, and I can get a sensibility about what somebody's looking for and how they view things, um, which is always very helpful. And if uh, the first presentation is generally right, because I've done that research well, if the first presentation isn't, doesn't feel comfortable or feels like something's way off, I know that I have a communication problem mm-hmm. uh, with that individual or that group of people. And that's often hard to overcome. But you usually know in the, first, in the first presentation, even though you're always making amendments and you're always refining things, it's how you talk about them that matters.
0: So are there particular red flags that stand out to you or is it just kind of gut feeling?
1: Well, if somebody can't respond to anything, it means I didn't ask the question right um, initially and I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Or the person is going to be difficult all the way through the process. I mean, uh, I think a designer's key job is to, to teach a client how to see. And so at the moment that you've, un- you've unveiled a, a number of, of um, options... To a given client. If they can't see anything, you haven't done your job right.
0: So you um let me in on a couple of new projects that you're working on. Can you tell me a little bit of what you're up to on the Snap Kitchen project?
1: The Snap Kitchen was amazing. We were asked to redesign this brand that's existed in Austin and in Houston, and some stores in Chicago, and they were going to open a pile of stores in Philadelphia and expand to the Northeast and to the, to the West. So um, they were looking for an identity design that would be capable of uh, being rolled out newly in New York and be, be able to retrofit other stores. And uh, we did a phase one proposal, and uh, they were, at the time we were doing that proposal, they were retrofitting, had uh, they had begun to retrofit stores in Philadelphia with their other identity. And we came into the process. In a phase one proposition, you're generally showing a number of ideas. And then in phase two, you refine the ideas and prove them out to make sure they work over a broad variety of uses. And in phase three, you do a manual and you're sort of completed with a job. What happened with Snap Kitchen was they liked a direction in phase one, and they liked it so much that they wanted to just roll it out. So (laughs) instead of doing phase two, we did our proof in the rollout. And in a funny way, it was more efficient than if we'd done phase two or three, because we would have had to make those corrections anyway later when they rolled it out, because there were things we discovered in the course of doing it for the rollout that we hadn't anticipated. So I'm very pleased with it. it it's um, opening in Philadelphia now. There are about six stores there. And uh, it's very different from the old design. It's very modern and contemporary. And the signage changes like Shake Shack does from store to store. It's uh, site-specific. And uh, I think it'll be quite great.
0: Cool. So do you think they will iterate from there as they expand forward and use this as like a prototype? Or are they so pleased that you think it'll just they'll just keep that design moving forward
1: well they have to iterate to a degree there's certain things that stay in place like the packaging and shelving system uh because the this is a, a a company where you you go in and you buy prepared foods that are made fresh daily in a local kitchen and they're all healthy and you buy specific diets you could buy something that's vegan you can buy something that's paleo you can buy all these different things and then have different configurations for every different store. Some stores are twice the size of others. So they necessarily have to be different.
0: Cool. So the, the other one that you mentioned that's coming up soon on the blog is a project you're working on for BQX. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one?
1: Yeah, we, we got involved in this thing early uh, like we did with a high line. Um, the Brooklyn Queens connector being known as the BQX right now is a, uh, a railway line that runs from Red Hook in Brooklyn uh, uh, to Astoria in Queens, which is right along the East River. And currently, you have to be a New Yorker to understand the significance of this, but currently there's no major mode of transportation that does that, that isn't very slow. There's a bus system, but it takes hours so by making this on-ground um, connector, it's really not a train. It's more like a trolley that runs around the coast, and it stops in various neighborhoods. So it changes the way these neighborhoods can develop economically. It's a big deal. And uh, we've designed the logo system, worked on the name, worked on the graphic package for it, and will continue until this thing happens. And it could take, you know, five years, eight years, ten years. 20 years you never know with these things Mm
0: -hmm. very cool
1: you know i designed the highline graphics and system in the year 2000 and the highline didn't open until 2008 just so you understand how these things work
0: yeah so you you mentioned i think that both snap kitchen and bqx are going to be examples that you'll have up on the pentagram blog here soon yeah i think within the next week or two Okay, cool. We'll definitely uh, link to those in the show notes so that folks who are looking for examples of that, and of course, we'll link back to all of that stuff uh, in the notes as well. Right. You know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about before, Paula, is, and I think so many designers are kind of either blessed or ruined at how you look at the world based on kind of their, their training and how we see things like kerning and color and Tangents, maybe differently, differently than the rest of the world. But um, one of your particular ones was um, your your story with with Helvetica. So I'm curious if you still see that as a as a throwback to to Vietnam, or if there are other things that you have have maybe sort of similar feelings about.
1: Well, I, I mean, I really I hope that the point about Helvetica isn't misunderstood. Uh, <laughs> all kids, I think come into the world of design with a specific understanding of the culture. And what's cool to them is the thing that isn't the thing that they're seeing all around them, but the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so they make value judgments about it. and Some of the value judgments are socioeconomic, like you think that, oh, that's the establishment's typeface, or um, uh, this is what uh, people over 50 like or this is what kids like, you know, it's how you make your, your associations. And, uh, when I was a young graphic designer, Helvetica was the language of major corporations. It still is. And those major corporations were supporting the Vietnam war. So it became the language of the establishment and the establishment was bad. So you didn't use it. Then later, it's just a typeface. You know, you look at it, is it a pretty one or is it not a pretty one? Is it a beautiful form? Is it usable? And you begin to, you know, reassess your opinion about it. But in, when I was in, uh, a young designer at Tyler and in, in the early 70s, I wouldn't go near it. Then at that point in time, what was also popular was her blue bow and ligatures and cold closing up things. And, and um, that's really popular right now. But, you know, it's funny, I look at it and I can't go back there because that's, <laughs> where, I, that's where I came in.
0: It's kind of like uh, fashion, if you feel like if you've done it or seen it already or you didn't like it the first time it came around when it comes back. Or come
1: well, out. you have to pay attention. You can't, you can't ignore fashion. You know, like you don't want to wear your hemline at the wrong length. I mean, one has to pay attention. But I think that you have to find your own way of looking and addressing things to stay current. And the more unique you can be to yourself the the longer lifespan you're going to have you know you want to be able to be an original voice you can't be a follower of fashion because the fashion's going to change, and someone's going to identify the new one before you get there. so you have to be yourself with all these fashions
0: sure, so where do you go for fresh inspiration or to kind of see you know what's what's cool or what's interesting, or maybe even to kind of decide how to buck the trend where do you where do you go for that
1: well I go everywhere um, I look I first of all fine art is always inspirational uh, both historically and contemporarily I look at things that are going on currently and try to find my way to be part of that but it has to be my way to be part of that I like uh, identity design so much because it has to be unique to the place. So it has to be um, something that resonates with the given time that you release it, but it's got to last for 10 years. So you have to think about it uh, in a much broader context than just trying to resolve something stylistically. And that's what's challenging and exciting about doing identity work.
0: I think especially um, identity designers, but as, as we've interviewed so many different kinds of design professionals here on the show, I feel like I find that most designers are obsessed with something. So I'm, I'm curious what you feel like you're most obsessed with right now.
1: Information and typography. Always have been. It's not new or, or different. That's that's what I'm obsessed with.
0: So tell me more about that. How is, how is information? making you obsessed
1: well uh organizing information um enables me to create hierarchies um and that the hierarchies begin to have meaning and dictate spirit to a degree so i create either symbols like for example with the philadelphia museum the notion of um How many different forms of art were collected in that museum enforced the solution. The solution became a series of movable a's against a very relatively generic logo Mm. that enabled the museum to talk in, you know, a myriad of different languages every time it needed to. And that was purely driven by the place.
0: Cool. That's another great example that we'll be sure to link up to. Oh, I'm curious how you spend a typical day, how much of your time is spent making or in meetings or presenting or um, coaching others what is what is a normal work day look like for you?
1: I generally have about three or four meetings a day and um, the meetings are either with clients or new business uh, where they're not clients yet and uh, I'll divide the day up by say an hour and a half period of meeting against an hour period with my team and doing emails and then another hour and a half period of meeting and then back to my team and emails and um sort of side things that happen with my partners and that's the way the whole thing
0: plays out so how do you shake off um you know if you have one of those off meetings or uh, you know rough day how do you shake off a, a bad project or a bad meeting uh, poorly, <laughs> I,
1: I have to say. I, you know, I have to say that that um, I I am better and more poorly equipped to deal with a, a bad client meeting on different days. It depends upon my level, level of energy and optimism. If everything else is terrific and there's one bad, bad thing, I can sort of blow it off. If nothing else is terrific and there's a bad thing, then it's very depressing. Um, so I can go up and down with that. Um, What's important for me is to stay in motion. So not everything is going to be bad.
0: Well, I've got a couple of quick questions that we can maybe shake the tone in the other direction, but are there any dream clients or dream projects that you have out there you'd love to get to someday?
1: That's a really good question. I have a lot of them right now. I mean, I'm working on things right now. I absolutely love, uh, like a new theater design and, and uh, identity and signage and for the quad cinema in New York, which is a, 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 a charming art theater, um, that I went to in the seventies that I love. So to do this is a, is a real joy and it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm working on a um, environmental graphics program for Planned Parenthood, which involves doing some inf- a lot of very intense mural work inside this, the, their space, which is um, exciting, it's political, and it's fun. The sorts of ongoing projects I have with my clients, like the public theater, are always terrific. I can't say there's a dream thing that I don't really have um, because the sort of work I get is, by its nature, work I want to do. The only thing difference is different within the systems of projects I get or the individualistic um, problems attached to each job and the sort of personalities of the people I'm involved with. And those things change.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What what do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now?
1: Well, I might be dead.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know. <laughs> 10 years from now is a long time. <laughs> I you know, I think I'd I'd like to be doing what I'm doing.
0: Very cool. Do you have any particular design heroes or people that you've looked up to throughout your career?
1: Well, of course, my husband Seymour Cloth who who is a workaholic at, at age 84. He's 17 years older than me and he um, still draws every day and is still making stuff and is uh, having a new exhibit of his war illustrations uh, next month and he's a marvel. And uh, also, um, so many of my partners are my heroes. Like my partner Michael Beirut, who um, continually grows, and, and uh, my partners in London are all spectacular the new york office is is a brilliantly talented office it's it's great to be around so that's all inspiring
0: indeed i'm a i'm a big fan of you guys and your work as we close out here i'm just i'm curious especially thinking back to your your students and young designers you've worked with over the years if there's a particular piece of advice that you pass along most commonly or or maybe your favorite piece of advice you've received
1: well, I, I, there are two things that I think every student should understand. And one of them is life is fluid and things change. And that, from a practical point of view, don't become depend, dependent on the technology of your time because it'll change very quickly.
0: Very good. Well, Paula, speaking of time, uh, I'm appreciative of yours. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: I apologize for my hoarseness and cold, but maybe it'll translate better
0: on the radio. (laughs) Oh, I think it'll sound great. Well, thank you so much for being here and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 85 officially in the books. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at obsessed show. If you have any thoughts on who you'd like to hear us interview next tweet to at Josh miles. While you're at it, head over to iTunes to give us a rating and review. We'd love to help other people find the show. And if you're not already, please hit that subscribe button. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.